Welcome back, Explain Yourself listeners. On today's episode, we have Raywin Duval. She's a PhD student in electrical and computer engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, where she focuses on localization of planetary robotics, aka understanding where a rover is on another planet or the moon. She has two masters, a master's of science in robotics from the University of Plymouth in England, and her master's of science in electrical computer engineering from Carnegie Mellon. She received her BS in software engineering from Tufts University in Boston. In the fall of 2015, she interned with NASA's ground software team, developing automated tests for NASA's Artemis mission launches. Between 2016 and 2019, she spent time interning at NASA's Kennedy Space Center's Swampworks team, which is their robotics research lab. Currently, Raywin is the deputy project manager for IRIS, which is going to be the first student-built and first American-built rover set to go to the moon in 2021. So, Julie, we are once again faced with a guest that knows much more about space than we do. Yeah, and I did a lot of brushing up between Roberto's interview and now. I do feel like we are more prepared and knowledgeable than we were for his interview, so I'm feeling good about that. I have to say, I think it's pretty cool that Raywin is helping lead a team of students, many of them undergraduate students, who are helping to build the first American rover to go to the moon. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, imagine those kids' resumes. Like, oh, my summer internship was volunteering at XYZ. Oh, um, I casually built something that went into space this year. So, yeah, they're definitely getting a lot more activity on their resumes than I was during my sophomore and junior, senior years of college. When I was putting together my first resume, I was definitely still adding positions from my sorority. And I don't know that they have the space on their resume to do that after completing a project like this. So that's awesome for them. I'm super excited to hear more about Iris and why it's a really big deal for not only these students, for Raywin, but also for just space exploration. Welcome, Raywin. We're super excited to have you tonight. We always start with cocktails. So what are you drinking? I am drinking hot apple cider with apple pie moonshine. She also has a cup that has nerd and kind of like a NASA logo on it, which I absolutely love. It's very fitting for the theme tonight. Um, I tried to get clever with my drink. Um, I wanted to do something that was either moon or space themed, but a lot of those drinks have like really sugary alcohols in them. And I just didn't have any of them on hand. It's also like of Arctic tundra in the Midwest right now. And so just leaving the house did not seem like something I wanted to go do. So I decided to make a white Russian, but I'm renaming it to a full moon because <laughs> I, I put a sphere ice cube inside. I thought I was being really clever. I was like, Julie, my ice cube looks like a moon. And I'm just, instead of a white Russian, I'm going to call it a full moon. <laughs> I love it. Basically I'm drinking a white Russian. I'm not going to lie, half of the reason that I do moonshine, the other half is I'm from Tennessee, but. I love it. Julie, what are you drinking? Well, I didn't get very creative with my space theme, which is why it's my virtual background right now. And I made a strawberry gin smash. Mm, That sounds delicious. You're just really channeling something warm because it's also freezing in Chicago. It's incredibly cold cold all up north oh my goodness it's just really cold all over the U.S. right now and we're recording this after Groundhog's Day and of course we have how many more weeks of winter I mean I never believe him anyway because it always just seems like it's going to be cold for the rest of the year but it's been really really cold everywhere well, that's why we get our drinks delivered by Drizzly. I'm just kidding. It's not delivered, <laughs> but if you want your Drizzly, just let us know. That would have been the perfect segue had, had we actually had a Drizzly sponsor. I probably shouldn't have picked a drink with dairy in it because now all night I'm going to be coughing. I didn't think that through. Coughing? Um, that's the least of your issues with dairy. Is it 
is coughing. Yeah. That's, that's the least <laughs> that I'm going to say on the air, at least. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to go way back to the beginning. What did you want to be as a kid? I was that kid who every two weeks wanted to be something different. Uh, so from writer to uh, veterinarian to uh, mathematician, teacher, just anything and everything whatever piqued my interest that week, to be honest, I was not that kid who had a set goal in mind and kept with it or even a set goal and then changed it. There was no set goal as a kid. I liked everything. The one thing I always knew is that I wanted to stay in school forever. And based off of the bio that we read before this, it seems like you've made that come true. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Actually, as a kid, my I, because I didn't want to, I was like, well, I can't stay in school forever, so I'm going to become a professor, and then I get to stay in school forever and take free classes. That was that was my thinking back then. <laughs> but yes, I have maintained staying in school uh, for quite a while now, working on my PhD. Definitely feeling like um, staying in school for quite a while after too. At this point. Hey, if you find what you love, there's always a way to do it. So we're very happy for you. <laughs> um, but you started off getting your bachelor's in software engineering from Tufts. Did you get that in hopes of being an engineering professor? No. <laughs> uh, so by the time I did go to college, I knew I wanted to be in engineering. I loved math. I loved physics. And I was too ADHD to sit down for a long time to be able to do those sorts of things I felt like. Uh, and so I actually went into mechanical engineering to start, uh, realized that I wouldn't be able to do any actual like hands-on projects or projects that like had an outcome right away. Realized computer science, I had liked that in high school, that, that seemed fun. And I did get to do projects right away. So I switched over uh, for the projects and it was still fun. Um, knowing that I was going to stay an engineer and knowing that I was going to be able to still take all of the engineering classes I wanted, but being able to have have some hands on hands on projects, um, which is ironic given the reason I wanted to be a mechanical engineer was so I wasn't sitting at a desk all day. I'm interested because you said that you liked some of your computer classes in high school. And all I remember taking was a class where I only played Oregon Trail for an hour or learned how to type with like a box over my keyboard. So what what were you able to do in high school? So, oh, I remember those classes too. Those were the learning how to type without looking. Most frustrating class ever, but also most useful later down the road when you're trying to look like you're doing something important with your boss walking over. <laughs> but besides that, uh, in high school, so I had a unique opportunity to actually go to Governor's School for Computational Physics, quintessential nerd camp right there. Um, and it actually was computer science and physics combined. So my, my older sister went to MIT for computer engineering. And she came home, told me cool thing, taught me cool things just on the side. Um, she was a lot older than me though, so I didn't have like too tight of a relationship back then. But it was something that was always interesting. And she made computer science sound fun. So I actually, uh, our computer science teacher who mostly taught, you know, typing classes, computer classes to the middle school. She also did computer science though. And so I went to her and I didn't have room in my schedule for the intro computer programming class that was this graphical based computer thing. So uh, I asked her if we could do AP comp sci because my brother did it in high school and I was jealous of him. I went to an all girls school. So AP comp sci wasn't like completely normal back then. And she was like, luckily I went to a small school. She said, if you can find two other people to take this class, we'll do it. So I went to the study hall room, grabbed two people and I will help you with your homework. <laughs> you will take this class with me. Um, so we did a computer science class, uh, AP computer science class that semester or that year. And then following that, I got to do a uh, governor's school of computational physics, got to learn uh, Fortran. So went from Java, which was the AP class where you did turtle world and you programmed a turtle using Java uh, to 
programming uh, physics and calculus equations for planets orbiting a solar system uh, using Fortran, which is this insanely old programming language that is still used for physics and about nothing else uh, today. So it was the two ends of the spectrum for programming, but those were like my high school experiences with computer science. And I knew I always wanted to continue doing computer science classes after that. I was like, this is super fun. I didn't know that I'd want to make it my major uh, at the time. I just thought it helps with everything else. When I wanted to be a physicist, computer science seems to help. Mathematician, computer science seems to help. So no matter where it was, I, I really enjoyed the computer science classes. Um, but that was, that was my high school experience was pulling two people from study hall to do a computer science class with me and going off to quintessential nerd camp where we stayed for a month at a university and did computer science and calculus. Julie, are you thinking as she's saying this that our high school experiences were vastly different than this? Because I would be the person that you had to pull in. You would have to do all of my homework because I would not have understood a single ounce of it. But that's really cool that they, one, you had the opportunity to do that. And two, that they, you know, you saw an area that you were interested in and then they made it happen. That's really neat. Yeah, I was really lucky with my high school with that. Um, actually, since then, I've, I've talked to them since, and they actually have a bigger computer science program there now, um, which is really cool. Same teacher teaching it, and she's called me up and been like, oh, yeah, we've got uh, all of our students doing this robotics project uh, these next couple of weeks. I'm like, what? <laughs> this was never a thing back then, but I'm really glad that it, it is now a thing for them, and it's apparently normalized in schools been hearing about all of these undergrads coming and being like, oh yeah, I've got plenty of computer science experience. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, so you graduate with your bachelor's and you're ready to apply this knowledge into the real world and get a job? Well, actually in undergrad, I had two internships um, right in my senior year. So the summer before my senior year, I went to Sandia National Labs and right after that during all of this i actually got offered an internship at nasa the first one i had to turn down because it was after i had already accepted my other internship so i was like okay gonna apply again and ended up getting it for a fall semester uh and so yeah i took a semester off actually in undergrad to do my first internship with nasa I guess they liked me enough that they pushed me to apply for after undergrad. Um, they have this program where uh, you're a government employee while you go back and forth between school and um, NASA, and then you have a full-time job afterwards. It's called the Pathways Program. And they pushed me to apply to that as a graduate student. It was really neat. <laughs> the software department that I'd worked for before wasn't able to hire. So they passed my resume to the robotics group that they knew I was happened to be interested in. Uh, and so first job out of undergrad was working at NASA. Let's talk a little bit because you've kind of foreshadowed this in your bio. So back in eighth grade, you won the science fair which the prize was from NASA. So this kind of foreshadowed your future a little bit. Yeah. Um, funny enough, uh, I was doing a robotics project uh, for my eighth grade science fair. Um, I was kind of jealous of my brother having a Lego Mindstorms. So uh, robot. And so I asked, uh, and my science fair, my, the science group at my school happened to have one theirs was dead. So I stole my brothers and switched them out. Don't tell him. But uh, so <laughs> got to take the Lego Mindstorms, build a little robot to just drive and um, basically was testing gear ratios, which now as an engineer was like the most simple project ever that you could think of as an engineer where you're like, really, you're testing which gear ratios would be better on terrain. But it was actually really exciting as an eighth grader. And even now, like, I think it was really beneficial to see, obviously, in person what that meant. Uh, never knew it as an eighth grader. So, um, but I built this little rover that I claimed was for Mars to test how to drive on Mars. It was my little Mars rover. Uh, and it was just a silly little project that I'd come up with. And yeah, I ended up winning the NASA award at the uh, local science fair which now, I mean, you know, 10 years later, 
from then who would have known that I was going to be working with NASA doing robotics and rovers. Uh, so definitely foreshadowed it um, and definitely not something I would have ever seen coming if you had told me that back then. Did you bring the NASA award into work at your first day at NASA to decorate your desk? I did not. So my senior year of college, actually, uh, actually during my first internship for, that was with the software department, but during my first internship, uh, at the end of it, my house from when I was a child, my childhood home burned down. So I actually lost everything along with that, which unfortunately included that award um, and everything else, but did not have a chance to do, I probably would have though. I probably would have, but yeah, unfortunately that happened. I'm sorry to hear that. That's unfortunate. And I mean, at least you, hopefully you'll have the memories for the rest of your life and very cool that, you know, in later on in your life, you've kind of come full circle and you've gotten to officially say that you worked at NASA. That's very, very cool. Yes. (laughs) And I'm sure that your family is super proud of you as well. I mean, (laughs) it sounds like just in our communication via email that you have a very smart family and a very successful family, but yeah, NASA, MIT, your mom's a doctor. Both my parents. Yep. Both of your parents. Wow. Yep. My, my dad was so silly, actually. He, they love the NASA stuff. Um, I definitely would not say I'm the smartest one of my family, but I definitely think I have the coolest job. And I think it's because I'm the only one who's allowed to talk about her job because everybody else works for the government as well. And now I'm the only one who doesn't and NASA's not secret. So I like to think I have the coolest job of my family, but my dad was really excited and loves rockets and loves science fiction. And so when our house burned down, actually, because I got the full time, they came down to Florida with me for that first summer before they went off to Nigeria, whole thing there. (laughs) Our house burned down, they were like, well, we have a suitcase, let's work for the CDC. So they went off to Nigeria, but before they did, they came and lived with me down in in Florida. Loved, love, love watching the rocket launches, hearing about NASA. And they just got back from Nigeria last, uh, last month and they just bought a home down in Florida in Cape Canaveral to continue watching rocket launches. I think it's very adorable that they've started they've gone back to that. And my dad kept a NASA lanyard that he now wears to work or wore to work all the time. That's adorable that they (laughs) have made their own home in Florida because you don't live there anymore, correct? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, but you could come visit us. I'm like, I can, and I probably will. But yes, they took to it a lot. And so now, even though I don't live down there, they have decided to retire down there to watch rocket launches anytime they feel like it. I mean- I feel like for most retired people in Florida, that is the dream watching rocket launches on the beach. I don't, with maybe a cocktail in hand, I don't think it gets much better. Oh, and especially because it's open liquor laws there. So you have this internship, your very first job out of college, you get to go work at NASA. And then as this is progressing, your internship is progressing, you're also going back to school and getting your master's degree. So talk to us about having this. And it's not just like my internship that I had in college where I worked at a radio station and did nothing. You are actually like doing really major things while also going back to school to get your master's. So talk to us about that. Yeah, so it was um, during the first master's, I actually took a year off of school um, to go get it, or a year off of school to go get my master's, a year off of work. So I took a year off of NASA to go get it um, because even if I had wanted to work part-time, the first master's was in England. So I couldn't work overseas uh, and for the federal government at the same time. So I took a year off, but it was also a weirdly liberating experience because most people with grad school are stressed out of their minds. It's like the most important thing ever. And I think it took a huge load off of me to know that I was going back to work at NASA after that. And I didn't have to necessarily worry about my grades. Like, obviously I still wanted to do really well. I still wanted to learn all the material, but I didn't have the same pressure to have to do perfectly um, or to spend all nighters or anything like that. 
that I think a lot of graduate students will say, oh, dear Lord, graduate school is full time plus 80 hours type work. But um, I think it took a lot of pressure off of me actually for that first master's, which was really nice. But I also got to work on projects whenever there was an open ended project, I could tie it back to work. Right. So like um, my thesis for that first master's looked at localization for potentially planetary robotics. So looking at robotic localization, how to find um, a robot in an unknown space, things like that, that I could take back to work and um, have that, that knowledge for future research there. So it was, it was this really nice thing to have one, a purpose of all of my projects, knowing exactly what my research I wanted to do by that point, um, but also not having that looming sense of, oh Lord, what am I gonna do after this? So that was really neat. And I always stay in contact with the like my coworkers at NASA during that. Um, checked in with them, hey, if I'm to do this project, you think we could incorporate it into this other thing we're doing when I get back? Uh, things like that, that was really awesome. So I come back from that master's, I did it in a year. Um, and I come back, I do work at NASA. And then the next one, I end up taking a year off. Uh, so I work at NASA for a while, I take another year off to do my master's in one year, again, uh, my second master's in one year. That one was because I was going to overload hardcore. But the other reason I had to take off was right before I left, I was part of um, a design review from the NASA side where I was doing a desi design review for the rover at Carnegie Mellon University that had been selected uh, to be a small lunar rover that would potentially drive on the moon. And when I left, they were like, hey, you should take that class and help with building the rover when you're up there and then you can come back and you're basically doing the same sort of research <laughs> throughout your time there. And that is how I ended up on my current project, <laughs> which is that same one that I started from the design review side at NASA to now I'm leading it. And it was so funny when I first got onto that, that next design review, I got on the call. I was like, hi, this is Raywin. I'm the software lead. And I hear on the other side, Raywin, <laughs> like, hey, Kurt. <laughs> so those moments where I had to give the other side of it to my coworkers after a year before having been on their side of things. It was definitely a funny transition to go there. But um, yeah, that's sort of the like ebb and flow of my masters and NASA work together. Um, always been working on some sort of project with NASA, even if it wasn't technically working for NASA at that exact time. Um, because again, I was taking time off, I was still employed, but taking that time off to do classes. So it's probably pretty rare to go from the review side um, and transition to being part of the build team. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what different sets of skills you have to use and how being on the review side in the first place had helped you lead the project? It definitely is a very unique situation to be in. Um, I went up to school thinking, okay, I'm going to join this project. I'm going to help, you know, in the same way that I help on NASA ones, be a small little part, uh, have my, my own little area. But having a lot more background, having worked at NASA, having been part of a team that we do every part of the rover from like, we, we're the ones who do really early development and research. So we build it, we program it, we work on all parts of it, even if it's not the one going to space. But I have that, that background knowledge from NASA to be able to see the full picture and have worked on all of the different parts. Um, so going up there, I was like, hey, uh, I am here to help out wherever you need me, place me where you need the most people. Um, I'm happy to help wherever. I just kind of want to be part of it. And since I know sort of the background of the project, I saw what y'all had done before, I can seriously go anywhere you want. And they were like, okay, um, what's your background? I was like, well, I'm technically computer science, but I've done computer engineering and embedded systems on the rovers at NASA. Um, 
they're all mechanical engineers over there. So I've tried to help them with mechanical engineering or had them teach me mechanical engineering, uh, things like that. So I really can be anywhere. So they were like, okay, well, we don't have anybody who knows software uh, for ground side right now. Do you mind leading that since you already know the project? <laughs> so like first day in, uh, since they already knew me because they had seen me on the review side and I already knew the project and they were like, well, we're, we have this missing gap that you, you know things about, uh, can you just lead it? So not what I was expecting at all. Um, and definitely felt like a leg up going into that project and then being chosen just because I had that background knowledge, which admittedly I had the background knowledge for, but definitely felt, felt like a cheat code that I got to use going into the project. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I got on the, the leadership team in the first place uh, was having been on that design side. Um, the other thing that was, was really crazy was coming from that design side where there was this one team who had de designed like um, this two, two wheeled with a tail small rover uh, and coming into this team that because there's a high turnover rate and everything like that, the, the rover was going through some major design changes, especially its students, they're just learning. Uh, it was really weird coming from the, okay, they have this two wheels with a tail to an immediate shift over of we're redesigning this thing. And so being able to be a part of, well, these are the things I heard NASA kind of uh, didn't necessarily like in the first design. <laughs> being able to do that, it, it did, again, feel like sort of a cheat code in terms of going into those future design reviews and being like, I know exactly what they're gonna wanna focus on. Here are the things we need to buff up in our presentations, things like that. Knowing the types of things that they cared about and being able to beforehand be like, okay, these are the things we need to deal with, which again, I think it was one of those things that helped push me to leadership. So I started off as the ground lead and then the software lead and now I'm the deputy project manager. And I think having come from that NASA side, knowing the questions to ask, having seen NASA and what they do process-wise for their rovers and um, having been a part of that definitely gave me this sense of, okay, these are the questions we need to be asking that most students aren't gonna know to ask in the first place, right? Um, our advisor will, but he's also trying to make it so that these students are learning. So it's really, it tries to be a student-led project. It's very much a university team, right? It's staff at the university, it's our professors, it's the, but it's primarily driven through the students, um, really putting in that effort and really learning along the way. It was started as a learning project, but it has then transitioned to, okay, we're going to the moon. <laughs> we're not a learning project anymore. <laughs> we gotta make this thing work. And having that background and knowing exactly which questions to ask and what things to push on to get it to work really, I think, was the driving factor for me being able to be in that leadership position um, and being able to say, we need to get this done. And, and having that sort of background knowledge, having that drive, like, and knowing what needs to go into making a project successful, um, I think really helped in that transition and since then as well. So I don't think we've mentioned the name of this project that you're working on quite yet. <laughs> so Iris is the name of this rover that you guys are building. Can you talk to us about why it's named Iris and then also why it's important? Because there's a few really big things that this rover is going to be the first to do. First and foremost on its name, if you looked at us up us from like a couple of years ago, you would have seen cube rover um, because we were working with Astrobotic and NASA and that was the general term for it. Um, when we split off from Astrobotic because it was the Carnegie Mellon rover that was going to the moon, we wanted our name to be meaningful to Carnegie Mellon. Before me, uh, our last, at the time it wasn't called W project manager, but she really was, she was, you know, the TA, the research assistant under our advisor, the one really driving the project. Uh, her name was Siri, or is Siri, I should say. So Siri was, was that driving force before me. 
and she put her heart and soul into this project to the point like she she put everything in and we wanted to pay homage to that but siri is sort of already taken by apple so we were looking at it's like oh well backwards siri is iris and iris is one you know the iris of the eye and since our rovers main sensors are cameras to take pictures of the moon uh it kind of fit with that and iris is also um, a flower that is really fragile but really resilient to very severe uh, conditions and so that was something else about our rover is that we are this small little rover that's going to be going to the moon um, and experiencing those extreme conditions like launch the moon uh, without any atmosphere etc and so it's just sort of all fit perfectly for us um, and so that's how we came up with the name Iris was really after Siri, but with everything else that Iris represents, it fits so well. The biggest thing for Iris uh, or biggest things, uh, we are the first American uncrewed rover to the moon. The moon has had the lunar buggy that the astronauts drove and the landers obviously for NASA, but they haven't actually had an uh, uncrewed rover go to the moon. It will also be the first university rover to space, and it will uh, be the smallest rover. Uh, so the Sojourner uh, rover that's on Mars, which is like the first rover that the Americans sent was 11 kilograms and we are two kilograms. So we're tiny even compared to the tiny little rover that NASA sent. Um, and so, it's a lot of firsts in space. There's a lot of technology that had to go into this that was previously not really recommend space recommended and things like that uh, that are going into this rover that make it quite a feat. But um, it's insane how many firsts we're checking off with this rover, especially as a university group. Okay, if you could compare the size of this rover to like an everyday object, what would you compare it to? We always call it a shoebox on wheels. So just <laughs> as light as a shoebox, about the same size. Yep. And it's empty inside except for its top piece that has like the electronics parts on it. It's a shoebox on wheels. You mentioned that your this rover in particular brings some new kind of technologies and innovations that were previously not space approved. <laughs> um, yes. What does space approved mean and what is new on this rover? So one of the first things that comes to mind is the fact that we're using carbon fiber. So it's this really lightweight material that has sort of been used, uh, it has been used in CubeSats before, slightly different use case though. Um, but it's also something that hasn't been explored enough to have re reliable uh, standards for space. And so it's actually something that when we were working with our lander team, we had to do everything in our power to convince them that carbon fiber would be fine and we wouldn't just like shake apart on launch and hurt any of their components. Um, so that's like the thing that comes to mind first and foremost is just using carbon fiber for a lunar rover um, is something that it's way, very lightweight, but the normal is aluminum because you want sturdy, you want something reliable. And carbon fiber is so easy to, if you get it wrong and there are micro fractures, then you don't know if something bad is going to happen to it with force applied. So it's really hard to go through that process of saying, yes, it is strong enough. Yes, it will survive. Um, and so having to go through that, that process of, okay, what do you need from us to show that just because we're students doesn't mean that like we're, we're going to mess it up completely. And so there was this back and forth to make sure that we got all of our uh, T's cross I dotted, I's dotted, um, et cetera so that we could show that yes our carbon fiber chassis will hold and it's going to be okay so 
there was a lot there that was definitely new, definitely un uncharted territory for both the Lander team and our team. Um, and so that was quite a learning experience for all of us, um, just getting through that process. But if it works, it's going to be a, a really big deal in the space industry because carbon fiber just reduces so much mass. Um, so one of the most expensive things in space, anybody can tell you in the space industry is the mass that's going up. The, the most expensive part is paying for launch and that's all based on your weight. And so if you can reduce that mass, then you're reducing so much overhead cost for that space system. So that's like the biggest thing um, that I can point to right off the bat. The other things though are our wheels. Um, a lot of wheels are just, you know, standard uh, cylinders with some spokes, some like flat spokes coming out to, to grab the, what we call regolith, which is lunar dirt. Uh, and we are actually using bottle cap designs. So uh, if you take like a Coke and you have the bottle cap or um, a cider or a beer, and you take the bottle cap, that or Reese's peanut butter cup for those younger folks listening. <laughs> but that's what it looks like is just uh, a little bottle cap uh, as our wheel because it has those innate, again, those spokes are called, uh, well, the external spokes are called grousers. So they're what dig into the dirt. And the bottle cap design kind of has that naturally. So it has that way of gaining traction um, on the regolith. And again, saves us some weight from having really heavy material that we have to then try to make lighter in any way possible, whether that's through holes or uh, other things, as well as making sure that it's still able to grab traction, be able to turn, not be able to like collect dust and uh, get stuck, things like that. Um, and so the bottle cap wheels are something that hasn't been done before that again, reduces that weight, reduces that those needs and it's very new. So Iris is planning to launch to the moon in winter of this year, which is very exciting. Are there more review processes that Iris has to go through? Are you guys, what kind of things are you having to do kind of leading up to the launch? Yep. We have one more review, one last one. Um, I mean, before, besides any that we feel like, oh God, we need to test this thing again for our own sanity. For being able to get on the lander, we have one more review and that's called the payload acceptance review. And essentially we take Iris to Astrobotic who is our lander supplier. Um, we're going on the Astrobotic Peregrine lander. So we take it to them and we show them all of our designs, all of the reasons we're not going to harm them or explode or anything like that on launch. Uh, show them that we can fit on their lander exactly how we told them we were going to and that we stay there. And then once they have checked all of that off and then like, okay, yep, looks like you won't harm us. We don't care if you work, but looks like you won't harm us. Uh, then we'll be able to integrate with the lander. So that's like our big our last big review coming up. Internally, you know, obviously we're going to keep doing checks left and right to make sure that we have everything as good as we can get it. Uh, Cause obviously we don't want to send, we don't want to send a shoebox to the moon. That's not going to drive. If you haven't already, go listen to Roberto's episode that aired on January 20th. And he talked a little bit about how the work doesn't end once your product's on space. So can you tell us kind of what your goals are when the rover gets there and what that means um, coming from a different aspect at the university? So once we've integrated, it's sort of out of our, the rover sort of out of our hands in terms of engineering and things like that. But at the same time, there's so much more we have to prep for because of once we're on the moon, right? So we need to know exactly how we're going to drive and every possible backup move we're going to do. Because something that you don't have a lot of time on, or <laughs> you don't have a lot of time once your payload is on the moon. Um, I'm not sure about the mass spectrometer um, that Roberto was working on, 
But for, for IRIS, we really have to work on mission control. So we have this high turnover because we are mostly students, because we are a university. There's this high turnover rate of students, right? You're, uh, semester to semester even, you're gonna have people who are able to work on the project or not. Um, and back when we were a class, you had people just taking it as a class. We are now down to like a core team of people who are in it for the long run, but we also have a, a bunch of seniors um, and graduate students who are graduating relatively soon. And so we have to be working on coming up with that, that book of here's exactly how you run the rover. Here's exactly what you're looking for, for faults and things like that. We also need to be training people, right? So anybody who is gonna be with us, we need to train to see um, how they are, what they, need, what they need to be looking for. Additionally though, there's not a lot of time once we're on the moon. We are battery powered, so we're not solar powered. We're tiny, so we don't have thermal capabilities of keeping warm or cold. Uh, either if it's lunar noon, we'll easily overheat. If it's lunar night, we'll easily freeze. So we don't have a lot of time once we're on the moon. And we're expecting to survive approximately 72 hours. So we need to get the most out of this mission as possible, which means planning every single thing as much as we possibly can. So running through simulations to understand what problems we might run into, how to fix those problems if we do run into them, going through the mission and being like, okay, if we see this type of rock, we're gonna go to it. And things like that, where how do we get that mission to run smoothly and to be able to get as much out of it as possible in that limited amount of time. So you guys get Iris into space this winter What's the plan? What are the next steps for Iris? Is it kind of a one and done or are there plans to build more rovers? Yeah, so Iris itself is a one and done, sadly, but um, it is a precursor to a lot more to come, I think, from Carnegie Mellon. We already in the works have started one called Moon Ranger. It's a bigger, fully autonomous rover that is going to the moon in the end of 2022. So it's going a year after us. Um, it will be fully autonomous. Uh, so it's going down to the South Pole to look for water. So it has a very exciting mission of its own. And yeah, it's, it should theoretically be, uh, or it should be the first fully autonomous rover in space, actually. Um, no, none others have been like fully autonomous out of communication range type rovers. And so this one will be driving away from the lander going around a crater and trying to find, uh, use actually one of the mass spectrometers from NASA to look for water. And it'll be doing that and then come back to the lander to report its findings. And so that's another Carnegie Mellon one that kind of launched out of our, successful, our successes with Iris. It was, look, we've proven that we can do things competently. And so that's moving into Moon Ranger. And we're really hoping that this will lead into future space missions, future robotic missions for Carnegie Mellon and really establish us as uh, a, a space exploration uh, university. With Carnegie Mellon working on all of these rovers and, you know, kind of cementing themselves in that sort of program, I guess this is a personal question, so it doesn't have to go on, but like, what is the competition with universities and having these programs? Like, who are you there's no competition. <laughs> You're just like suck it. <laughs> um, no, but actually, uh, Carnegie Mellon is world renowned for its robotics program in general. So if you look for robotics, Carnegie Mellon is sort of that starting place for robotics. Um, that is unquestionable at this point. Uh, so really in terms of competition, you've got Carnegie Mellon as a robotics institute where it is a solid name. It has been a name for years and is well known as like the number one robotics institute in the world. If you want to do robotics, you go to Carnegie Mellon. In terms of space, it's actually really new. Um, we don't technically have an aerospace program. We don't have that formal study of that a lot of uh, universities like Purdue or something like that are going to have where they have an entire program dedicated to aerospace studies. And so this is sort of the start of that. We're looking, we're hoping that this will develop into a continuous 
space program for Carnegie Mellon to really establish ourselves as a uh, space institution versus just the robotics side. And in terms of competition for that, I mean, again, there's a lot of aerospace schools. There's the one that comes to mind is Purdue, just because I know a lot of people who went there uh, personally. But I know there's like a lot of other really good schools. You've got MIT, you've got Stanford, things like that with really good aerospace schools. Um, a lot of robotics in those aerospace schools, right? But in terms of robotics, Carnegie Mellon is, is number one. Uh, so really the question isn't about robotics, it's about space in terms of that. I think the hardest part is robotics in space. Once you've got the robotics down though, that's like the hard part to get right working once you're up there. And since we're working with aerospace companies like Astrobotic, we're being able to have design reviews by people like NASA. I think it was a big learning curve for us, but I think it's one that now that we've sort of gotten over that hump, we're really going to be able to thrive in that in that space. You mentioned that the program saw a lot of turnover because these are a lot of undergrad students working on this project, but that now you guys kind of have a core team that's taking it to the finish line, if you will. So you've led a range of students. What do you think is the biggest lesson that they've taught you? And then what's the biggest lesson that you hope that you've been able to teach them? Those are really excellent questions. I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I've learned so much from this entire endeavor, um, but I think one of the biggest lessons that they have taught me is, it's gonna sound so vague and I'm gonna get into it more, but leadership. Um, it's something that before, you know, I'm, I might take the lead on a project with like a couple people or something like that. I've definitely been able to just work with groups and just, we get things done. But this is the first time that I've been having to push other people to meet a deadline. And that's something for me that I realized, not relatively quickly, but over this time that I'm not good at being firm. I was chewing out a, uh, a student one time for missing a deadline on this project. And again, this is big stakes project. So deadlines are really important. I was chewing them out and got off the phone and I went to my roommate. I was like, ah, I'm so aggravated. And he was, I was like, I just, I had to like chew them out. And he was like, that was you chewing them out. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, uh, well, I, I'm just saying, I would love to be chewed out by you any day. Because, <laughs> but also if, if you were trying to chew them out, I don't know that they got that message. <laughs> so it's been something that I've really been trying to learn and how I phrase it is my stern mom voice. I'm trying really hard to learn that stern disappointed mom voice um in talking to I imagine like if I was missing a deadline I feel like this is how you would be I'm really gonna need you to consider making that deadline and I'd be like uh -huh, okay <laughs> consider yeah, no, that's exactly it unfortunately there's even a little bit more to it where I'd be like look I really I understand where you're coming from like being a student is so hard. I probably would have missed this deadline as an undergrad too. I can't even imagine what it's what it's like trying to make these deadlines, but I really need that. Like it's unfortunately we're not gonna fly if we don't get this done <laughs> as soon as possible. And I just when do you think you can have this by? And we'll set it to that date. Like if if it doesn't work that way, like I can I'm gonna have to make it sooner. But what do you think is this reasonable deadline? So that's that's my disappointed mom. <laughs> to be fair, I feel like that is one of the hardest skills to learn how to do. So don't feel bad because <laughs> a lot of people struggle with this. I think trying to get people, I mean, on one side, you are trying to be a leader, right? And, <laughs> and you want to come off in a way that these people are still going to be able to work with you in the future. Yep. But it's really hard to tell other people what to do do when you're all working on the same project and you don't I'm sure you too at times see them as like peers as well so that makes it difficult yep I, it's still weird to me thinking like I talk to them you know and I still think I still see myself as um 
you know, their age, right? I don't think of myself as out of college because I've been in school so long at this point. But it's one of those things that I remember undergrad, like it was yesterday. I remember how, I mean, even as a grad student, it's hard to make those deadlines and just understanding that. And then I talked to them and I'm like, yes, we are peers. They're doing so much more work than I ever would have been as an undergrad. So it really feels like we're on the same level. And then on the other hand, you know, they use something including the word yeet or something like that. And I get very lost. So there, there's two sides to that, or, you know, I'm like, oh, I could really use a drink right now. I'm like, anybody want to go out at the end of the week to like let off some steam? And they're like, we're, we're not 21. I'm like, oh, dear God, I'm old. <laughs> so, you know, there's those moments of realizing again that, oh, right, I'm the one, I'm supposed to be a good example. So there's like, yeah, there's definitely that mix and, and being a good lead um, at the same time as having been there and still like understanding where they're coming from, but also needing them to understand exactly how important it is to make deadlines has definitely been such a challenge. <laughs> what about the thing that you hope you've taught them? Yes. So the one thing I hope that I've taught them is that you are not always the smartest person in the room. So one thing that, again, so I went to like a relatively smaller undergraduate. I went to Tufts, like it's a really good school, but I definitely didn't come, in, come out of that thinking that I knew everything there was about space robotics. It just definitely was something that I never even thought I was gonna be in going into it. So going into any internship, I think every single student learns very quickly that they don't know everything. And if they think they do, their internship is going to go very poorly. But as a university project and not as like a formal internship or anything like that. And also at the beginning, being a class, I think a lot of students come into this seeing this as their own personal project that they get to define and they're right and you're wrong, no matter who you are. Hubris of being young, but um, it's one of those things that I hope it's something that they've learned is just that you're not going to be the smartest person in the room. And I hope it's something that sticks with them past this and that they don't come out of this project thinking that now that they've got something on the moon, clearly they're the smartest person in the room. Cause I think it's something that, I mean, is really easy if you be like, I know everything. I have a project on the moon, whatever. You can't tell me otherwise. But I think everybody still has something to learn. And I think it's something, I mean, no matter what, even the, we have sophomores as team leads right now, just because we did need that fresh blood to be able to continue us to the finish line. And they are amazing. They are a wonderful team. It is so impressive what they do as sophomores to be able to like succeed in all of their deadlines and things like that. Um, and to be succeeding at, doing systems engineering and things like that as a sophomore before you've even taken classes for that. But it is one thing that I worry about. Like, I know if I had been that age and I came out of this, I'd be like, I don't need university. I don't need internships. What is this? Just hand me a job already. Julie and I were talking about this before your interview of how, I mean, I would immediately go to my LinkedIn profile and just be like, I took something to the moon. <laughs> tell everyone. It's, I mean, I would tell everyone now at the age of 31, I would tell everyone, but at the age of like 18, 19, 20, I definitely would just, I'd roll down my car windows everywhere. I went driving around. the bar. I was like, do you want to buy me a drink? Um, I took something. To the- <laughs> right. right? About me. Yeah. So, to be fair, I'm pretty sure I will too. Yes, <laughs> as you should, as you should. If you ever see Raywin at a bar past this winter, buy her a drink because she took something <laughs> to the moon. I mean, I won't turn it down. <laughs> as you shouldn't. You should not have everybody buy you drinks for that reason. <laughs> so we have a couple of listener questions for you. The first one is how do you plan to watch and celebrate the launch of Iris? So like I mentioned earlier, my parents bought a condo in Cape Canaveral just to watch rocket launches. So I'm going to go down there and be like, hey, mom, hey, dad, that's my thing on that rocket right there. (laughs) 
gonna be great. Uh, this is the thing I'm most looking forward to is that I know my parents will be there. Um, but in actual actuality, we have already discussed as a team, we're all going down there and we're getting so excited. I'm, I'm super excited. Uh, I know that uh, project leads and things like that are usually allowed on center to watch the launch. So I'm really excited about that. And then to my super dorky, I absolutely adore my dog side. I just found out that Tori Bruno, the CEO of ULA, United Launch Alliance, who is providing the Vulcan Centaur rocket that we are going up on. He has a Husky mix that is adorable and all white, just like Albina. And he named it after a Russian space dog, just like all of my dogs are named after Russian space dogs. So I'm planning on sidling up to him at that launch. And going, so doggy play date after this? <laughs> I love that. Fingers crossed that it works. Fingers crossed that you guys can just have doggy play dates all the time. I love that you named your dogs after Russian space dogs. I didn't know Russian, like, I didn't know space dogs were a thing, first of all. So, yeah, the Soviets sent up dogs. So, like, the Americans sent up monkeys, right? The Soviets sent up dogs uh, before they sent up humans. And so they're big ones. If you look up Laika, Belka, or Stroka, those are like the three really famous Russian Soviet space dogs. But there were so many space dogs that went up. Um, they were strays from the street that the Russians would, would pick up and send to space. So there were so many of them. Highly recommend the book, Soviet Space Dogs. <laughs> Not like I've read it or anything. <laughs> I'm suggesting this for our next book club read. It's not, it's not like a, a book clubby club read. Like it's very much like a, one of those historical, here's all the pictures and explanations type read, but it's super good. I highly enjoy it. And it gives you like a, a really fun background into what the Russians did for their, their space flights on a happier level than if you actually read one of their reports. Yeah, I anticipate that. The, the reports being fairly sad. Um, Strays was an interesting choice, but I guess you're not really training a dog to go on the moon so no <laughs> i am training them for uh dog sledding though that's incredible um yes. are you going to like do you have a plan to take them once they're learned yeah hopefully um so i just found out that uh so the way i've always known it is called joring um which is like pulling dog pulling um so you can do joring with like bikes and stuff like that and i just found out that it's a completely different term in the u.s and so i just found a club for it though in near pittsburgh for cart racing and so i'm hoping to join that club to try to get them more into it but i definitely want them to be pulling sleds the one problem is i have cold induced asthma so while we get great training during the summers and we run a couple of miles in the summers when it turned winter, which is the good time for them to run, I suddenly can't. So still trying to figure that one out, unfortunately. But this summer we made actually really good progress and they can follow a trail and everything actually with uh, perfectly fine. Uh, they do pull the entire time. So I have hope for them that uh, within like a year or so I can get them pulling me at least on a skateboard or something this summer. That's amazing. My dogs can't pull anything. Um, <laughs> I also have a corgi and a mutt. So I, my corgi's really good at herding me around the house to play fetch with him, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, these two, I, I started it with Mishka. Um, and the, the plan eventually is to either go to like Alaska or Canada to, to teach them how to sled. Um, I've always been obsessed with dog sledding, so... That kind of leads into our next listener question. Is this what you plan to do after you finish getting your PhD? Or you did mention earlier you want to be in school forever. <laughs> so do you have plans to get more degrees? Both. Uh, so I actually have definitely considered just dropping out of this whole robotics thing, especially like right after Iris. Be like, okay, I have my thing on the moon. I'm going to go dog sled the rest of my life now. Like, bye guys. <laughs> Been there, done that on anything cool, whatever. Um, and then just train for the Iditarod and do that next. I don't know. Um, but no, I do want to take off some time definitely bef between PhD um, and either like travel with the dogs or be able to go up to and train or things like that. Just take some time off between 
school in the real world again. Um, but additionally, I'm not gonna lie, my my dream as well. I have like a couple. Um, additional dream is to be able to convince like um, one of the the big name rocket groups like Rocket Labs in New Zealand or Blue Origin or something to create a planetary robotics group and let me lead it because I've been really loving leading the IRIS pro project. And so being able to continue program management and things like that, no matter what I do, I'm going to be taking a class at the time somewhere. <laughs> I'm starting some business management classes uh, here at Carnegie Mellon. And I'm thinking that either during my PhD or right after finishing up a MBA to be able to do that as well. <laughs> just add a third master's on the list, but why not just add an MBA? I'm currently getting my MBA. So um, when you said that you got your, both of your master's in a year, um, I am on my second <laughs> year of trying to get my master's, but working full time as well. But I would say just based off of what you've said about enjoying leading, I think there's some project management, leading yep. leadership type roles in your future for sure. I hope so. But yes, I definitely plan on getting my MBA one way or the other. Um, and like I said, I'm already taking some of them here, actually. Uh, we have an MBA school at Carnegie Mellon. So I'm taking a couple classes here and there, hoping to slide them under and not have to pay for them afterwards. That but. is Julie and I's advice to everyone that gets <laughs> master's degrees is have somebody else pay for it so yep. that you don't have to. So the last portion of all of our interviews are always a fun, maybe not so much job related question. And you had mentioned that you were interested in writing kind of science fiction books. So can you talk about what the plot would be? Oh, that's a good question. I don't have the full book plot. I actually really enjoy uh, short stories. So I've actually written a lot of short stories uh, throughout the years. Uh, one of my favorites actually being the one that got me into college. Um, one thing you, you sort of asked was how did you decide what to major in? And I think one of the funnier answers is to the question, how did I decide to go to Tufts? And it was because I knew nothing about it except that they accepted me into their school of engineering having written a science fiction short story, uh, science fiction love short story. <laughs> So I was hoping that your answer would be a sci-fi love story because I just yes. think that would be the most interesting combination of genres. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, so yeah, it was one of those things that I really enjoyed the prompt for Tufts uh, admittance. There were a couple of them, right? For the, the essay, you could answer one of them and I sort of combined a lot of them, but one of them was like, celebrate your nerdy side. And the other was, what are the consequences? What were the consequences? And so I wrote this short story about a time traveler who went back to the start of World War I to try to stop the war to save the guy she, she had fallen in love with. But it ended up still happening. And he still ended up dying because... <laughs> My short story is usually pretty depressing. <laughs> um, it was a very heart-wrenching short story for sure. And it amused me to no end that the engineering school admitted me still by writing a love story <laughs> for their essay. Would you be willing to share the short story with us? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> if we put it on the website. Put it on, your, on our website so people can read it. Sure. I, <laughs> um, I, I took a little short stint at writing short stories, and which you can find on our Instagram page. In fifth grade, I wrote a short <laughs> story called A Bloody Rose, and it's pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Did not get me into college, um, and I'm pretty sure had I submitted it to get into college, they would have turned me away. But. Yeah, you would have edited it as a senior. <laughs> The last fun question that we ask all of our guests is, what is your unpopular opinion? I don't like bacon. Ooh, no bacon at all. No, it's not like a healthy. I like ham. 
so do you not like it because it's just crispy or I don't like the texture I would like I don't really care for how fatty it is except that I like the fatty part of steak too so like I've got nothing for that but something about the texture and taste of crispy bacon if I go when I was in England I liked their bacon it was not crispy bacon but it's funny you mentioned this and I have coworkers who will listen to this one of them is British and when we were back working in the office this was over a year ago at this point but there was a huge debate about American bacon versus <laughs> English bacon. I mean, nope. it was like a knockout drag drag fight. Like it was it was bad. I had to like go into my oh, office goodness. and shut the door and remove myself from the conversation. That's how defeated it got. But she claimed that British bacon is by far better than American bacon. I completely agree with her. But it, all it is is just like sliced ham, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I would never have called it bacon to be fair. That was the but, argument was that it's not bacon. It's literally just sliced ham that's thrown into a frying pan. Yeah. Well, to be fair though, what is actual bacon? It's just sliced ham thrown into a frying pan. It's just a different part of the, the ham. This is fair. So I feel like in terms of that, like they're not the same, but they also are. But yeah, it's I, I definitely agree with her that English bacon is way better than American bacon, despite being an American Southerner who should probably not feel that way. Raywin, thank you so much for coming on and explaining yourself. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about all the amazing things that you've accomplished so far <laughs> in your career. I know that you are going to accomplish so many more things and congratulations a, a pre-congratulations on the launch Knock on wood no jinxing <laughs> anything so thank you for coming on and being a guest yeah thanks Annika and Julie it was so much fun so if our listeners would like to follow you is there some place that they can keep track of what's going on with Iris Iris has a bunch of social media we are on Facebook Instagram uh, LinkedIn Twitter uh, and we also have a website, the uh, irislunarover.space. So that's our website. And if you look up Carnegie Mellon or CMU Iris on any of those platforms, you'll find us. For me personally, my Twitter is Raywin Arcadia. And uh, I also have a LinkedIn, but Twitter is really where I'm trying to keep people up to date on the Iris happenings. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Explain Yourself. You can find show notes for this episode on our website at explainyourselfpodcast.com and also reach out to us on our contact form if you have questions or suggestions for new guests. Make sure you're following us on our Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast and on Twitter at explain underscore podcast for more behind the scenes information about our guests and about Julie and I. We'll be back next week with an episode with Justin Stiefel, who is the CEO of Heritage Distilling Company. Justin started his career in politics and was one of the youngest chief of staffs for a senator and eventually decided to open his own distilling company. And per usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please go like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, ratings, and reviews really help us to grow this show, get new listeners, and continue to bring you guys really great guests. And that way, it's not just our moms listening. Listening.